0: When does human life begin? When does science say life begins? When does the Bible teach the start of life? How should these answers impact our views on abortion? Dr. Bill Petrie will look in detail at this very difficult and divisive subject on today's Differing Things. Abortion, Roe versus Wade, Supreme Court leaks, protests, all of it is so emotionally and politically charged that it is hard to sort through, think through, or discuss without an argument. But if you step back for a moment, if you separate yourself from the political crowds, If you try to take the emotion out of the issue, then you are left with one inconvenient truth. Whether you like it or not, when we are talking about the issue of abortion, we are talking about the taking of a human life. Perhaps one can debate when personhood begins, which itself is a sticky debate with major philosophical implications. But scientifically and medically, there is no question that a unique human life begins at conception. As Dr. Maureen Kondik, professor of neurobiology at the University of Utah notes, and I quote, the conclusion that human life begins its sperm-egg fusion is uncontested. Objective, based on the universally accepted scientific method of distinguishing different cell types from each other and on ample scientific evidence, thousands of independent peer-reviewed publications. Moreover, it is entirely independent of any specific ethical, moral, political, or religious view of human life or of human embryos. Indeed, this definition does not directly address the central ethical question surrounding the embryo. What value ought society place on human life at the earliest stages of development? A neutral examination of the evidence merely establishes the onset of a new human life at a scientifically well-defined moment of conception, a conclusion that unequivocally indicates that human embryos from the one-cell stage forward are indeed living individuals of the human species. They are human beings. End of quote. This is the central question in the abortion debate. When does life begin? Science teaches without reservation that life begins at fertilization or conception. It is a scientific fact that an organism exists after fertilization that did not exist before. This new organism has its own DNA distinct from the from the father and the mother meaning that it is a unique person as the embryo grows it develops a heartbeat 22 days after fertilization its own circulatory system and its own organs from fertilization it is a new organism that is alive and will continue to grow and develop as long as nutrition is provided and its life is not ended through violence or illness. It is indisputably human because it has human DNA. The offspring of two members of a species is always the same type of creature as the parent's. No two dogs will ever conceive and give birth to a cat. No fish egg will ever produce a snake. According to all the laws of nature and science, the preborn baby is human. Scientific textbooks proclaim this fact as loudly as loud can be. Keith L. Moore's the Developing Human Clinically Oriented Embryology, 7th edition, states the following, and I quote A zygote, or fertilized egg, is the beginning of a new human being. Human development begins at fertilization. The process during which a male gamete unites with a female gamete or okite to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized, totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual." End of quote. Zygote is a scientific term for the new life that is created when the sperm and the egg combine. Ucoit is another term for the egg cell, the cell released by a woman's ovary which travels down the fallopian tube and is fertilized by the male sperm. The author of this scientific textbook, Keith L. Moore, is a world-renowned embryologist. He has written several definitive books on embryology and his scientific knowledge and experience are vast and beyond reproach. Few medical students can complete their careers without studying one of his textbooks. Moore puts it even more plainly in Before We Are Born, Essentials of Embryology in the 7th edition. On page 2, he states, The zygote formed by the union of an oocyte and a sperm is the beginning of a new human being. Here, end of quote, here is an example from another scientific work from Human Embryology and Teratology by Ronan R. O'Rahilly. On page 5, he states, Fertilization is an important landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is thereby formed. End of quote. This third embryology textbook is as clear as the first two. Fertilization is the beginning of a new life and the start of a new, distinct human organism. From T.W. Sadler's Medical Embryology, 10th edition, on page 11, I quote the following. Development begins with fertilization, the process by which the male gamete, the sperm, and the female gamete, the oikite, Unite to give rise to a zygote, end of quote. And in another source, Ronan O'Rahilly, in his work Human Embryology and Tetralogy, on page 8, states, Although life is a continuous process, fertilization is a critical landmark, because under ordinary circumstances, A new genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and female blend at conception. End of quote. In yet another textbook, William J. Larson, in his book, The Essentials of Human Embryology, on page 14, states the following Human embryos begin development following the fusion of a definitive male and female gamuts during fertilization. The moment of zygote formation may be taken as the beginning or zero time point of embryonic development and the beginning of life, end of quote. As we can see, embryology textbooks are clear. Life begins at fertilization. And the life that begins is not simply a continuation of the life of the sperm or egg cell. Rather, it is the life of a distinct, unique, new individual who has never existed before in history and will never exist again. Nothing will be added to the new organism except nutrition and it will continue to grow and develop until death occurs due to injury or illness. Leonard Nilsen was a photographer who took the first pictures of pre-born embryos and fetuses and made them available in his famous book, A Child is Born. In the introduction to this book, which contains beautiful full-color pictures, of pre-born babies in different stages of development, he states, and I quote, but the whole story does not begin with delivery. The baby has existed for months before, at first signaling its presence only with small outer signs, later on as a somewhat foreign little being which has been growing and gradually affecting the lives of those close by." End of quote. This incredible book shows gorgeous photographs of the pre-born baby from conception or fertilization to birth. We see the shape of the six-week-old embryo begin to resemble the profile of the baby who will be born. We see the tiny, fully formed fingers of an eight-week-old pre-born baby. It is a remarkable book that many expectant mothers have seen, and its photographs have been reproduced many times. The word embryo is defined as such in Van Nordstrand's Scientific Encyclopedia, 5th edition, on page 943, and I quote its definition. Embryo, the developing individual, between the union of the germ cells and the completion of the organs, which characterize its body when it becomes a separate organi- organism. At the moment the sperm cell of the human male meets the ovum of the female and the union results in a fertilized ovum or a zygote, a new life has be gone. End of quote. And yet another textbook, Bruce M. Patton's Foundations of Embryology, 6th edition, on page 3 states, Almost all higher animals start their lives from a single cell, the fertilized ovum or zygote. The time of fertilization represents the starting point in the life history or antigeny of the individual, end of quote. This is a mere handful of excerpts from medical textbooks. These books are the most popular textbooks used in medical schools throughout the entire world. National Geographic put together a television program in 2005 entitled, In the Womb. It is a documentary documenting the development of the baby throughout pregnancy. In the introduction of their program, they sum up the scientific knowledge of the beginning of life in the following way. The two cells gradually and gracefully become one. This is the moment of conception or fertilization when an individual's unique set of dna is created a human signature that never existed before and will never be repeated end of quote in april 23rd through the 24th of 1981 a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee held hearings on the question of human life begins. Appearing to speak on behalf of the scientific community was a group of internationally known geneticists and biologists who had the same story to tell. In fact, their testimony agreed 100%. And that is, namely, that human life begins at conception. And they told their story with a complete absence of opposing testimony. Because the evidence is overwhelming. The Subcommittee on Separation of Powers to Senate Judiciary Committee, S-158, report the 97th Congress, first edition, and I'm going to quote some of the people that gave testimony from this. Dr. Michelin M. Matthews Roth from the Harvard Medical School gave confirming testimony supporting, supported by references from over 20 embryology and other medical textbooks that human life began at fertilization. I quote her, It is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual life begins at conception, end of quote. The father of modern genetics, Dr. Jerome Lejeune, told the lawmakers the following, to accept the fact that. After fertilization has taken place, a new human has come into being is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It is plain experimental evidence. Each individual has a very neat beginning at conception. End of quote. Dr. McCarthy DeMar, medical doctor and law professor from the University of Tennessee, testified, and he stated, the exact moment of the beginning of personhood and of the human body is at the moment of conception. End of quote. Dr. Alfred Bonajovani, professor of pediatrics and obstet- obstetrics from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, concluded, I am no more prepared to say that these early stages represent an incomplete human being then I would be to say that the child prior to the dramatic efforts of puberty is not a human being. I have learned from my earliest medical education that human life begins at the time of conception, end of quote. Dr. Richard V. James had this to say, to say that the beginning of human life cannot be determined scientifically is utterly ridiculous, end of quote. Dr. Landrum Shettles, sometimes called the father of in vitro fertilization, states, conception confers life and makes that life one of a kind. End of quote. And on the Supreme Court ruling Roe versus Wade, the legal brief establishing Roe versus Wade stated, to deny a truth about when life begins should not be made a basis for legalizing abortion. End of quote. Professor Eugene Diamond stated, "Either the justices were fed a backwoods biology, or they were pretending ignorance about a scientific certainty." End of quote. Gordon Haimy, medical doctor, chairman of medical genetics and at the Mayo Clinic, states, "By all criteria of mo- modern molecular biology, life is present from the moment of conception." Science has a very simple conception of man. As soon as he has been conceived, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, end of quote. See Christopher Hook, medical doctor, oncologist at the Mayo Clinic and director of ethics education at the Mayo Graduate School of Medicine, stated, When fertilization is complete, a unique genetic human entity exists, end of quote. The official Senate report reached this conclusion, and I quote it, Physicians, biologists, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of the life of a human being, a being that is alive and is a member of the human species. There is overwhelming agreement on this point in countless medical, Biological and scientific writings end of quote when the sperm and egg fuse together, a unique human individual is formed. All of the chromosomes and genetic information needed for the rest of that unique individual's life are immediately and entirely present. The human embryo that is formed at that moment also has the inherent ability to direct its own development powerfully and amazingly forming all the tissues, organs, systems, and eventually the heart and brain to sustain ongoing human life. This is basic science. This is irrefutable. This has been observed 100% of the time. It also reflects the beauty and sanctity of life expressed in the Hebrew Scriptures. Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14 state, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. If nothing else, step back and be amazed at the wonder of life and the incredible information packed into the single cell of the embryo. Just one gram of DNA is theoretically capable of holding 455 exabytes. That's enough for all the data held by Google, Facebook, and every other major tech company combined with room to spare, according to the New Scientist magazine. Now I realize that this reality alone does not solve the debate or make it any less emotional. In fact, it makes it even more emotional because in talking about abortion, we are talking about the most important thing we can be talking about, human life. What value is there in human life? When can a human life be taken? Is there a difference between human life and human personhood? Is there a fundamental change in the status of the fetus when it develops its own heartbeat? What role and decisions does the mother, the one supporting the human life in her own body, have in this process? Are there exceptions for rape, incest, or the health of the mother? These questions can be very difficult to answer. Roe versus Wade was one answer given by our own Supreme Court, back in the early 1970s. But instead of solving the issue, Roe versus Wade inflamed the issue. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg acknowledged that Roe versus Wade went too far and created more of a mess than it resolved by ignoring basic science. She argued that it was based On even a wrong premise. I quote Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She stated, doctrinal limbs too swiftly shaped experience teaches may prove unstable. The most prominent example in recent decades is our own court's ruling on Roe versus Wade. A less encompassing Roe one that merely struck down the extreme Texas law and went no further on that day might have served to reduce rather than to fuel controversy, end of quote. The point is not to argue whether Ginsburg was right or not, but to say that many legal scholars on both sides of the aisle see the glaring weaknesses of Roe versus Wade. Pro-abortionist Dr. Solomon Stevens, a teacher of constitutional law at Boston University, observed, and I quote, Roe is vulnerable because it is a weak case based on a weak precedence. End of quote. Columnist George Will, a conservative columnist in a recent article in the Washington Post, concurred, Dr. Solomon Stevens' opinion: He stated, "Intelligent people of goodwill disagree vehemently about the morality of abortion. Defenders of Roe's reasoning are, however, vanishingly rare." End of quote. Thus, whatever your view on abortion the main role of the Supreme Court is to decide whether law is constitutional or not, whether it honors our God-given rights and upholds justice for all. If Roe is indeed based on weak judicial reasoning and a poor interpretation of the Constitution, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Dr. Solomon Stevens, and George Will all concur, then, then the Supreme Court should overturn it. To react with emotional anger and protests against the Supreme Court says nothing about the merits or the constitutionality of the case. That is the only thing that the Supreme Court should be deciding and the only thing that people should be debating when it comes to Roe itself. But I am not a legal scholar. I understand that. I am also not a woman who has been put in a position of carrying a child in pregnancy. I cannot imagine the difficulties that a woman might face in certain circumstances, such as an unwanted pregnancy, compassion, understanding, and grace are always in order, and sometimes answers are not easy. But the inconvenient truth remains. Abortion is the taking of a human life. Jean Garton was an abortion advocate faced with her own unwanted pregnancy. She was a firm believer in abortion until one night While observing the medical slides of an aborted two-month fetus, her three-year-old wandered into the room and asked innocently, who broke the baby? Her three-year-old saw what she did not want to see, and it changed Miss Garton's perspective and her life. She went on to oppose abortion, not only because it ends a human life, but because it also harms women. When one studies the history of abortion, oftentimes the person who wanted the abortion the most was the man who fathered the child. Abortions in the Roman Empire were almost always forced on the woman by the man, and most of the children aborted or killed right after birth were girls. Thus, the ratio of males to females in the Roman Empire was estimated to be as high as 140 males per 100 females. In the nations of China and India today, the ratios are similarly skewed because of the prevalence of abortion against females. In many cases, the women who are having abortions are doing so because the father is not only unwilling to be involved or to be a help, but also actively pressuring the woman to abort. These are the men who want to gratify their sexual desires but not be responsible enough to love the women that they impregnated or raise the baby they fathered. This is the side of abortion is rarely talked about what a pregnant woman wants is often not an abortion but the commitment of a husband and a father and the support and love of a family and a community around them to help them be a mom thus a culture of abortion not only devalues human life but also reinforces the irresponsibility of men and often the biggest victim of this kind of culture are women. If Roe versus Wade is overturned, then it will not be the end of abortion, nor will it be the end of the difficult debates and choices that face us as a nation. It will merely put the issue back in the hands of the states where the issue can be debated among legislators elected by the people they represent and thus ignoring science and biblical precedent. Ultimately, no law can solve all the issues, only changed hearts, and a society bent on acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God can bring about the best solutions, which not only honor the life of the child, but also honor and support the life of the mother but perhaps it is fair to ask who are you to speak I am not a woman I am not a mother I am not the one facing some of the difficult realities that a woman might face during pregnancy that is true and I can never speak as a mother and beside all of this There are many pro-abortion advocates who claim that there is nothing forbidden abortion in the Bible. For example, ex-priest Daniel C. McGuire states, There has been no systematic thinking in Jewish Christian tradition on abortion. There is nothing in the Bible on it. End of quote. Roy Bowen Ward, professor, Emeritus of Comparative Religion at Miami University of Ohio writes, one thing the Bible does not say is, thou shalt not abort, end of quote. Mark Bigelow, a member of Planned Parenthood's Clergy Advisory Board, writes, one thing I know from the Bible is that Jesus was not against a woman having a choice in continuing a pregnancy he never said a word about abortion nor did anyone else in the bible even though abortion was available and in use in his time end of quote what are we to make of the bible and abortion argument the statement that abortion is not explicitly mentioned in the bible is technically correct however this allegation falls prey to the logical fallacy of assuming that because an act is not mentioned in Scripture, the Bible therefore approves of that act. After all, Scripture does not specifically condemn many other types of evils, such as pyramid schemes, terrorism, carjacking, and kidnapping. Does this mean that Christians should not oppose these evil acts either? The Bible and abortion argument is a mere diversion, like the other pro-abortion slogans. It is a straw man. Some people mock Christians who look to the Bible for moral direction, claiming that people should not need the Bible to know that certain acts, such as murder and stealing, are wrong. Of course, they are half right. These sins are against the law of nature. And nature's God, so they are unjustified by any means. But we can also extend such reasoning to include abortion. Christians do not need the Bible to tell us that abortion is wrong, because as we have already shown, science concludes without a shadow of a doubt that the preborn child is a human being, and reasonable people can agree that it is wrong to kill innocent human beings. Abortion has always been more of a scientific question than a religious one. It would not occur to many pro-abortionists that Christians might oppose abortion for other than biblical reasons. They frequently allege that Christians have no use for science, yet they themselves utterly ignore science in their mad rush to defend abortion at any time in pregnancy and beyond in some cases. They ignore all evidence proving the existence of fetal pain. They are profoundly and willfully ignorant of fetal development and they simply ridicule post-abortion syndrome in the abortion breast cancer link. Therefore, Pro-abortionists have such difficulties when they are confronted with atheist or agnostic pro-lifers who argue solely from the scientific point of view. Pro-abortionists generally base their opinions on neither science nor religion, but mere feelings. As MSNBC host Melissa Harris Perry said, and I quote, when does life begin? I submit the answer depends an awful lot on the feelings of the parents. End of quote. And when asked what a preborn baby feels when it is being killed by abortion, abortionist Michael Ballard replied, and I quote, Oh, I think that depends on your philosophy. End of quote. In other words, abortion advocates only use both theology and science as weapons. Not not in a genuine and honest search for the truth. Their appeals to the Bible are irrelevant to an honest, scientific discussion of the case against abortion. Even so, pro-lifers can easily point to the Bible to support their position, as well as the science of what constitutes life. There are many sins that the Bible condemns implicitly or indirectly. For instance, the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, certainly applies to sins such as serial killing, terrorism, and the indiscriminate bombing of civilians during warfare, though these are not specifically mentioned in the Bible. How then may we know that the Bible indirectly condemns abortion? I think there's four major ways we can know first to begin with the Bible repeatedly condemns the killing of the innocent Jeremiah 7 6 Jeremiah twenty two seventeen, Psalm 106 verses 37 and 38 Proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 through 19 Isaiah 53 6 Luke 17, 2, and Matthew 18, verses 10 and 14. A preborn child is obviously innocent of any crime or actual sin because he or she cannot possess the intent of doing evil. Pro-abortionists sometimes justify abortion by casting the pre-born child in the role of an aggressor. This is illogical because aggression requires conscious intent. Second, the Bible teaches that human life created and nurtured by God is present in the womb of the woman from the very beginning. Psalm 139 verses 13 through 15 praises God, stating, For thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret, intricately wrought in the depths of the earth. Furthermore, God personally named and honored seven men before they were even born. Only persons merit names. These seven are Ishmael. In Genesis sixteen eleven, Isaac, in Genesis seventeen nineteen, Josiah, in 1 Kings thirteen two, Solomon in 1 Chronicles twenty two nine, Jeremiah in Jeremiah one five, John the Baptist, in Luke 1, 13, and Jesus Christ Himself in Matthew chapter one, verse twenty one. Third. All authentically religious people agree that God opens and shuts the womb and infuses the human body with a soul. There are more than a dozen biblical references referring to this. This means that God certainly intended to create a human life, and we have no right to interfere with his will regarding its creation. God does not act randomly or without reason, despite what some abortion advocates allege. He creates every child for a purpose. Psalm 127 specifically refers to children as a gift of the Lord and as a reward. We do not have the right to disrupt or destroy his plans. Abortion is a supremely arrogant act because it imposes a creature's will over its creators. Is not this the definition of all sin? Stubbornly refusing to do God's will for our lives. And finally, God is not inconsistent. He has loved us all with an infinite love since he created us, long before anyone here today was conceived. He has said to us, I have loved thee with an everlasting love in Jeremiah 31.3. If he values people he named, he values all of his created pre-born human beings. The conclusion is inescapable. The Bible condemns the killing of the innocent, preborn children are innocent. The human life is present from fertilization as willed by God and is confirmed by science. Therefore the Bible also condemns the killing of preborn children. No other honest or logical conclusion is even possible. Preborn babies are among the most vulnerable and helpless members of our society. The value of human beings is not dependent on where they are, how tall they are, what race they are, what they look like, or how old they are. Each person has inherent worth because of who and what. He or she is a member of the human species. I hope you enjoyed this podcast of differing things, and I hope it challenged you. I hope that you will really give a fair hearing to the things that you heard today. Today's podcast is going to end with some music that is used by permission from James Sunquist. The name of the song is Harvest Song, and I hope you enjoy it. Good day, and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.